You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's guest speaker, we have Andrew Cristo Delitis, founder and CEO of Moro that has raised one round through equity crowdfunding and is preparing to raise the second round through equity crowdfunding again. So in this episode, we'll focus a lot on equity crowdfunding, how it works and specifically how Republic works because uh, more raised their previous rounds through Republic and the second coming round is going to be raised through Republic as well. So Andrew, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Moral. Yeah, sounds good. First off, uh, thanks for the intro and thanks for uh, having me. Uh, quickly, a little bit about me again. My name is Andrew Christodoulidis. I'm Greek. My parents are from Cyprus, and I lived there for a little bit as a kid, but mainly grew up in Queens, New York. Uh, when I started college back in 96, I was also working full-time for a family friend who was mentoring me as well. And during my first semester, my dad lost his job of 30 plus years. And that incident became the catalyst for my uh, first startup. Within a couple of months, I'd left school and started Asina. With about $500, I started a, um, an inbound call center outsourcing company, a 24 seven um, inbound outsourcing uh, company at that. Uh, looking back, I think I probably learned a lot more about business and leadership on the job over the 10 plus years that I grew that company than I would have in school. And I sold it in 2008. Uh, Today, I'm living in Long Island, New York with my wife and two kids, and I'm working on Mora, which is my third startup. Uh, I'll give you a quick overview on on what what we're doing, if uh, that context would be helpful. Yes, that was my next question. Let's go. Cool. Yeah. So Morrow is building a refinable visual search platform, which is driven by curated user-generated content. Our proof of concept is largely focused on the home category, whereby we've amassed approximately 5 million photos of people's homes, which will be distributed through uh, search, content feeds, and profiles with three primary objectives. One is for ideas and inspiration, the way you might use uh, Google Images or Pinterest or even to some extent Instagram. Uh, Two is connection and collaboration. And then three is shopping or product sourcing. Uh, We've tested two business models, uh, marketplace and affiliate, and we're in the process of developing an advertising interface as well. Uh, Our belief is that the user-generated content will continue to substantially outpace on-platform availability of products and services accordingly. And despite the majority of revenues during testing coming from marketplace, ultimately will primarily be an advertising business model similar to Facebook or Google or, or, or YouTube rather than the marketplace that we've been largely focused on to date. And while we're continuing to grow the community and platform around the home category, we've also begun to curate user content and data more broadly, and we're organizing that content and data with a similar distribution model being planned. 
Mm -hmm. Got it. So first question about more is going to be, what do you actually do there? So one of the things that I think sometimes founders confuse is that first of all, founder has to be a CEO. And secondly, what does a CEO actually do? Because CEOs pretty much do everything, but can you give us just like an outline of your average day, especially pre uh, fundraising? Um, yeah, so, um, I have a very clear vision of what we're working toward. Uh, the massive impact getting there will have on all stakeholders, as well as how the products we developed are at the heart of it all. So I try to allocate most of my time to the two things most critical to that. First is the team itself, um, and then the product, designing and, and managing the development of the product itself. That said, as is typical in the startup environment, especially with the craziness going on in the world today and with team members being scattered throughout many time zones, um, sometimes pulled in different directions. Mm -hmm. Got it. So uh, now let's talk about equity crowdfunding. Recently, we released an episode about uh, reward-based crowdfunding, specifically in Decogo. Now let's talk about equity crowdfunding. Why did you decide to go that way and not the standard, you know, safes, angels, angel groups, VCs, etc., and you know, uh, the, not the standard way? Yeah, sure. I mean, the simple answer is we really like the idea of being able to give um, any stage investor um, a stake in something with the upside that we see for tomorrow as opposed to limiting it to um, institutional investors or, or higher net worth individuals. Mm -hmm. Got it. So, um, you know, looking back at your first fundraise, I assume it was a success because otherwise, why would you raise the second round through Republic again? So looking at the first round, what do you think was the best thing that you saw there for moral? Yeah, I mean, so like I said, we, we, we've done two rounds so far. I mean, two parts of a seed, essentially. We, we raised uh, $2 million in, in total, about a million through a convertible note from friends, family, and uh, high net worth individuals, some of which have started and built their own great companies. And then uh, a little over a million, a million seventy through a safe offered on Republic last year. Um, and that's what enabled us to give um, a greater pool of early investors access to the deal. Nice, got it. So uh, my next question is, how did you choose? So what was your uh, thought process like when you were deciding, you know, between the equity crowdfunding versus uh, reward-based crowdfunding versus the standard path of angels? Um, Honestly, we hadn't considered uh, any other uh, type of crowdfunding other than equity crowdfunding. Uh, we, the, the reality is we were doing but or considering both in parallel. And um, we considered Republic early on and really as a, we, were, we were interested in moving forward with it, but as a result of having adequate interest from our own network, uh, we decided to put it off uh, even after having everything in place to launch the campaign. Uh, and when we wanted to do a follow-on uh, seed round, uh, we decided to move forward with it again. I, I always liked the idea of being able to give 
of all types of investors access to the deal. And mm -hmm. so uh, when we raised the uh, second million dollars, we decided to do it with Republic. And like you pointed out, we, um, we hit the target. In fact, they, you know, at the end of the round, I think there were about a thousand investors that unfortunately couldn't get in the deal because we had hit the maximum allowed by Reg CF. Um, and so, yeah, we, we were happy we did. The, the, uh, the capital is one thing. Having a network of 4,000 plus investors that now have a stake in the company and are willing to support in other ways beyond the check that they wrote, the, the, their networks, their expertise, and really support in any way they can, their voice, um, has been as valuable and in some cases more valuable than the, um, the check from that same investor. Right, absolutely. I actually invested, I think, $100 to Republic myself. And since then, I'm still in touch with the founder of that company I invested in. <laughs> so it's real cool. So yeah. let's talk a little I bit more about sense. that, uh, about you know using your investors network. That's the thing I don't quite understand. Can you give us an example of you know how how does that work? So do you send out an email to all your investors saying like, hey, we are we have achieved X, Y, Z, but here's what we need to get. So let's say you need to hire a creative designer and you just put it out in that email and then wait for people to respond or is it does it work somehow differently? You know, candidly, uh, we've not done uh, any outreach on our own. The, the benefits have been offered to us by individual investors. We've had people reach out and say, look, you know, I'm an expert in in patent law, so if you need any help, I'm happy to help. Uh, uh, I've got a career at, you know, in media. I've worked at ABC. If, if there's ever anything that I can help you with, I, I'd be happy to. And so, or, you know, um, if I can, I've got, I was in design and or I was in contracting. I know a bunch of designers. If it's okay, I'd love to share what you guys are doing with them. And so there's probably just based on those type of opportunities that fell on our lap, a lot more that we could be doing um, uh, more proactively, but we've not even done that yet. And we've still seen a lot of uh, benefit through the support that's been offered from some of the investors. Mm -hmm. Got it. So now let's talk a little bit more about the upcoming fundraise through Republic. Why do you decide to raise the second round through Republic again through equity crowdfunding? Is it because you want to keep increasing the your network, or what's the major reason for going the second round sure. through the same path? Yeah, I mean, so we decided to raise through a reggae, um, as I alluded to earlier, in part based on the fact that we had many investors unable to get in the last round because it hit the maximum uh, limit allowed by Reg CF. Um, it was about a thousand or, or so investors that couldn't get in. And additionally, many of the investors from the last round had expressed interest in increasing participation and we wanted to give them a way to. Uh, we did not commit to, we're not obligated to, but um, during the last round, many investors asked if they would have the right to increase participation, and we told them that it's something we would be trying to uh, afford them, and, and reggae was the way to do that. And then as far as our partners for the round, we had a good experience with Republic. Um, we did speak to and we considered uh, all of the other major platforms and partners for, for the Series A, for the reggae. Uh, but ultimately, we decided to stay with the folks we knew and trusted.
And so we're doing the CEO of Republic again. Right. I've actually interviewed the CEO of Republic like a few months ago. Great guy. Absolutely loved him. So yeah, definitely made it work. Yeah, it's a great, great group of people over there, you know, in, in my experience with them. 100%. So now let's talk about maybe some mistakes and some major takeaways from your very first round on Republic. So hmm. you know, looking back at that experience, what do you see as, you know, the major mistake, something that you would never do again? Yeah, I had a couple, you know, at, at the uh, risk of sounding over obvious, uh, a big one is and this isn't specific to Republic, but this is more uh, in general related to doing a an early stage raise. Uh, a big one for us was just realizing that nothing is more important than having something worth investing in. You know, the more investable you are, the easier it'll be. People aren't going to invest their hard-earned money as a favor or because, because you or the business needs it. So my advice is, uh, again, at the risk of sounding over obvious, uh, set out to build something truly great and demonstrate clearly and, and viably how you're the right team to get to it, to do it. Um, also, I, I learned specific to the crowdfunding uh, effort that uh, it, it's, it's important to stay focused on the outcome and relentless in the effort, but not to get too caught up with exactly how the process is gonna go and how long each step will take. You know, when we launched a Republic round, uh, I don't remember the exact time, but it was, you know, a fair amount of time, weeks, perhaps over a month, that there was no movement on the campaign. And that was tough to deal with. We didn't go into it prepared. We hadn't done any warming up of investors. And so we were off to a very slow start, and that was, that was challenging. Um, but like I said, stay focused on the outcome, stay relentless in the effort, and uh, play the long game. And, you know, all, that worked out for us. Mm -hmm. Yes, there is a happy ending on that specific fundraise. So I'm curious here now, uh, when was that you know, turning point? When was it you know, that the campaign was not slow anymore, but gained traction? So what, did you change something in your strategy? Did you start reaching out to more investors in a new way? Or what, what was new? What changed the, the way that things were going? Yeah. You know, I went into the, um, the raise. Uh, my understanding was that you were not supposed to be communicating uh the offering before it was live and so we hadn't done any communication prior to the raise going live and so we were really starting from uh, scratch after the campaign had launched and it takes a little bit of time to do outreach to to have uh, the dialogue that results in the investment starting and so um there wasn't really a turning point it was just a slow process to build up uh, interest and it was probably, I don't know, a month or so before we hit the minimum required amount before the deal started getting some prominence on the site. And between that and the uh, outreach that we were doing, um, it was a there was a snowball effect from there. Nice, that's really cool. Love snowball effects uh, in a good way only. Uh, so let's talk about a little bit more about comparison. So. You know, looking back at your first race to Republic and preparing your second race, what are the major differences that you see there in terms of, you know, approaching those? Um, yeah, so we haven't finalized the uh, terms uh, for this yet, but with the Series A or the Reg A that we're going to be doing through Republic, 
uh, we're going to try to give our existing investors early access to the round at what'll likely be a discount on the valuation. Um, another thing we're thinking about doing, and it was a, it's raising, I mean, fundraising in general is a very time consuming thing. Uh, it was especially time consuming raising through the, um, uh, the crowd. You know, there were a lot of redundant conversations, uh, really felt like another full-time job. And candidly, I enjoyed building the business and, and, and the product much more than fundraising. So, um, another thing that we're, we're thinking about doing is not offering the, uh, same terms and valuation for the entire round and, and not offering the same minimum investment. Uh, amount for the entire round. So we want to allocate a piece of the deal to our existing investors and to all types of investors that might be uh, that that are investing significantly less than institutional investors will or more sophisticated higher net worth investors will. But rather than doing that for the entire duration, we're thinking about limiting the that portion of the offering uh, because of how time consuming it can be to manage all of those conversations again in a, in a way that feels pretty redundant sometimes. Right. That's actually very fair. So let's talk a little bit more about comparisons and let's go back in time to your previous company. So, you know, looking back at those and looking now at Moro, what are the major differences that you see there of your personal approach, you know, to building those companies? Um, so my first startup was acquired by the market leader. We self-funded, um, like I said, started with $500, built the company, sold it 10 years later to the, then, and, and still market leader in the space. And uh, original pad, my e-commerce business essentially became the, we grew that company um, to revenue uh, beyond what we achieved in the, in the first startup but never achieved profitability. That company became the, uh, what we had developed as part of that company became the foundation for Morrow, which uh, started development a few years ago with the same core team, as well as the product and proof of concept developed in the prior startup. Um, by normal standards, my, my first company was a great success because again, we grew it and exited. Uh, however, in my view, we had an exponentially better outcome with the second startup. Over the five or so years that we were operating the commerce business, we identified what we considered to be major issues with online search and shopping norms, particularly in the home base category, but also applicable more broadly. And during that time, we worked on several solutions and ultimately developed and validated a model for vastly improving the experience. And again, that model became the basis for, for Moro. So the takeaway after my first startup was that if I work hard, even on something mediocre, I can succeed. And while <laughs> that may have been true, it's also uninspiring and its success potential is limited. What I left my second startup with was clarity and validation for a model that I genuinely believe can put a dent in the universe. I, I really believe we'll vastly improve how people search, shop, and connect to one another online. And that's something that lights me up almost every day. And 
it makes it a hell of a lot easier to get up and keep going anytime things are tough. It's also a primary driver for why we've been able to uh, attract amazing talent, why we've had success with our fundraising, and why we've established a lot of the partnerships that we have. We, we really, we wouldn't be here today. Those opportunities would not exist today had we not gone through the uh, challenges of the prior startup, or obviously if we had given up because of those challenges. Mm -hmm. Great, that's actually, that's very accurate for pretty much any startup founder. So great, great moves there. And for all my listeners who have been listening for me for at least, you know, two plus episodes, you all know how much I like talking about, you know, failures, uh, previous mistakes, et cetera, et cetera, and how I like to discuss the uh, downsides of pretty much anything. So we've talked a lot about, you know, upsides and benefits of working through equity crowdfunding. Now let's talk about the downsides. So, you know, looking back at that first fundraise and going about to be going to the second fundraise through Republic, what do you think is the major downside of that? Yeah, again, I think the only downside that I can think of is how time-consuming the process was. We would have mm -hmm. um, the same conversation um, many times with many individual investors, uh, and that was uh, spread out over the course of uh, the six months that the campaign was live. Uh, I think having the experience with the Reg CF, there are ways we can circumvent that on the following round. I, I mentioned limiting the amount of time that we keep the deal open to the crowd uh, rather than having uh, individual discussions with hundreds or thousands of investors. Uh, we can do weekly uh, webinars where we address the more common questions all at once. Uh, so, uh, you know, like anything else, it wasn't easy. That I would uh, say was probably the biggest downside to um, to casting such a wide net, uh, keeping the deal open to so many investors as opposed to filling the round with, you know, a much smaller group of institutionals. All right, that's very accurate. Sounds like a decent downside, but sounds like you have come up with a solution. So next question is about your personal advice to early stage founders who are trying to raise money right now. What would you recommend them doing? Uh, you know, who should, who do you believe should go your same way, so the same way as you have gone through equity crowdfunding? Um, I would do, I would do it over again, if that's what you're asking. I, I, my advice would be based on um, the challenges that we face is to go into it a little bit more prepared. Of course, even before going into any type of fundraise, um, we, this is based on firsthand experience also. While we were um, struggling with the prior e-commerce business, we thought about raising capital and we had to come to terms with the fact that we were not building anything exciting enough to warrant outside investment. You know, at best, we were building uh, a Me Too business. And so before going out uh, to do a fundraising of any kind, I think it's important to really um, uh, be building something that's worthy of investment, that's worthy of investment, whether it's from friends, family, institutional investors, or through the crowd. Um, without that, I think it's very hard to get any, anything off the ground. And, you know, once you have that, I mean, maybe that goes without saying, once you have that, uh, based on my experience, uh, equity crowdfunding is a path I think is absolutely worth going down. 
and if you better prepare uh, there, you can probably do it without uh, it being as much of a, a workload um, and a general challenge uh, early on as it was to us. You know, what I'm doing now, I mean, even with the experience that I have, I'm in constant contact with uh, other founders that have been down that path before, that have done CFNAs, and we're forming a plan for how we're going to manage the different uh, facets of the raise, the different stages of the raise, uh, and like anything else, the better prepared you are, uh, the more success you're going to have, the, uh, the less of a challenge it'll be. Nice, yeah. Speaking of the preparation, by the way, I forgot to ask you, would you recommend founders to hire someone who's actually experienced in that, who is qualified, who has gone through several of those, uh, you know, some, something like marketing agency or something like that? Or do you think founders can actually handle that by themselves? You know, I mean, of course, that'll vary from team to team, depending on what the internal resources are. Uh, I would say uh, most, if you have the, the bandwidth, um, the skills required to manage it, manage it internally uh, are not so complex. Uh, so it's just a matter of whether you have the time to do it or not. I, what I highly recommend is that you, any founder that's considering going down this path, and admittedly this is not something I did, uh, but anybody that's considering going down this path, start to connect with other founders that have already had the experience, and especially those that have had success with it, um, I found that most of them are, are, are generous with their uh, time and their uh, and sharing of their experiences. Um, and that makes it a, a whole lot easier than inventing the wheel as you go. Mm -hmm. Right, that's actually very true. And founders are very supportive of other founders as long as you, you know, show some respect and try to help them back. So. At this positive point, we are moving on to the last question of today's episode, which is a call to action. So, Andrew, what's the one thing you want the listener to do right after the episode is over? Um, well, uh, the round's not open. You know, uh, we'd love for your listeners to follow us on social. We're, we're uh, we are we on Instagram. And... Um, if I can be of any help, anybody has any thoughts or questions, they can email me directly at uh, andrew at moro.com. That's andrew at moro.com. And of course, if anybody wants to be notified when the round is open, email me and I'll be sure to keep them in the loop. Perfect. Great call to action. And if anyone is as bad at spelling things as I am, I'll make sure to leave a link to all the things that Andrew just mentioned in the description of the episode. So. If you're curious to read more, if you're curious to follow the story of tomorrow, definitely take a look at the description of the episode. A lot of info is going to be there. And yeah, that's going to be my call to action. You know, as usually, go to the description of the episode, find interesting stuff there, and have a good day.